Good morning, beloved. You're not going to believe this, uh, but in high school, a girl once called it off with me. I knew that would go one of two ways. Either there would be laughter or stunned silence. I was really hoping for stunned silence, but you didn't give that to me. That's okay. But if you can believe that that actually happened with me, it gets worse because not only did she call it off with me, but in calling it off with me over the phone, which is such a cowardly thing. Um, anyway, but she calls it off with me. She's telling me it's over, but she tells me the reason it's over. And the reason it's over is because over the weekend she had ran into her ex and like sparks and all that stuff. And I was like, what is this? Um, and I've got to tell you, um, I so wanted to tell everyone, everyone, what a not pleasant female she was, but with different words. Um, I, like, I, I was so hurt, and I wanted everyone to know just how awful this person was. I just really wanted everyone to know. Thankfully, I withheld, um, but I really wanted everyone to know just how unpleasant this person was. Um, there, there's this, this reality for us that there are things we're not okay with. There are things in life that we are not okay with, but the question is, how can we still be okay? If there are going to be things in life that, that are not okay, how can we still be okay? That's the big question. How can we still be okay? And so we are in week two of our Advent series, um, coming up to Christmas, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter one, picking up where we left off last week. So look with me at Matthew chapter one, verse 18. We'll also be on the screen behind me. Um, Matthew chapter one, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Um, you have to understand that marriage worked a little differently. Um, getting, getting married to someone was a bit different in first century Palestine. So we're looking about 2,000 years back um, in what we would call the Middle East or Israel as we know it today. Um, in that region, the way that marriage would work is a lot of the times it was arranged for you by your parents. Um, but what would happen is a husband and wife-to-be would meet each other and the, the marriage would begin with a betrothal period. And so at the start of that, you have the legal exchange of vows, so to speak. Um, we put all this together in one ceremony, but then it would be like, okay, here's the decided amount for a dowry, a payment, um, what's going to exchange hands between families, families are heavily involved, and so they would come together, there would be this kind of binding contract of we are now betrothed, we're engaged in more modern language, um, but it's, it's actually legally binding at this point, but it has not been cons consummated. And so there's this period where the, the groom would leave his bride and he would go back to his own family household and he would literally build on a room to now have his own immediate family. And so this, this whole idea, idea of I'm going to prepare a place for you, Jesus says to us, his bride, and my father's house are many rooms. And all these, like it makes sense in this context. So the, the groom would leave his bride. They're legally bound to each other. They're engaged, they're betrothed. And yet it's not finalized. He has now gone to build on to his father's house to then come back and receive his bride, bring her, and that's when you'd have the big wedding party that would be days long, and it would ultimately lead to the consummation, the physical intimacy experienced only between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. And so what we have here is Mary and Joseph are in the middle of that. They have not consummated the marriage. They have the legal binding terms have been established. They are engaged. They are betrothed to each other. And yet they have not yet had the wedding ceremony and all that comes with that. And so in this in-between time, 
Mary, engaged to Joseph, discovers she is pregnant, just as she had been told. She is pregnant. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, decides to divorce her quietly. And that is quite wild. Being a righteous man, he could not marry her because Mary appears to have been unfaithful. And you have to like put yourself in Joseph's position here. Like Mary, sure, she had this angelic vision where she's told, you're going to get pregnant. I've never engaged in the thing that's required to become pregnant. Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is actually going to conceive what's inside of you. And she's just lost in wonder and all this stuff, but she's, she's engaged to Joseph. But again, now put yourself in Joseph's position. He did not get that angelic vision yet. And now all of a sudden, the girl he's supposed to be marrying starts to have a bump. It becomes clear, you are pregnant. And she can say what she wants to if an angel showed up to me and everything, but you imagine being Joseph and hearing the love of your life telling you the reason that she is now pregnant. And what is he thinking? You've been unfaithful. How could you do the, the deep hurt that he would have felt and experienced in that. And being a righteous man, that means he cannot marry this woman who has been unfaithful to him. But even if, like, suppose he decides, you know what, I'm going I'm to let that pass. Like, uh, I'll raise him like he's my own. I, I don't know how we got here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it die. Let it lie. Let's move on with this. But then being a righteous man, what is everyone else going to think now? Everyone else is going to think, Joseph, you couldn't wait, could you? And no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was not what? That makes no sense. And so in every way, this is just awful for Joseph. Like there's not a clean direction for him to go. And he decides, instead of putting her on blast, and I think back to me in high school, and that girl who had wronged me, and I so wanted everyone to know how awful that was. Joseph somehow had the peace within him. Somehow was able to remain calm and deal with this in a way that was gracious decided, yes, she had probably hurt him worse than anyone in his life at this point. And he decides to part ways quietly with her, to divorce her quietly, to not put her on blast with everyone. You gotta think, how can a man have that kind of peace to accept that kind of hurt and not lash out? Peace is the theme of week two in Advent. That as we explore peace, we have to ask, how could that man have that kind of a peace? How can we have a peace inside of us that means I don't have to retaliate? That in the midst of crazy circumstances of life, I can still be okay. How can we have that kind of peace? But this is, and this, it's relational peace that we're, that we're mesmerized by. They're like, that's, that's amazing that he could do that. But Relational peace is external peace, and so often we're in conflict. It's outright, like you see it between different parties. And that external conflict, if you want peace for that, and what Scripture tells us is you have to actually start with internal peace before you can have external peace. So right now, whatever is keeping you from experiencing peace, and you may think it's that relationship with that person, the wifey next to me, man, if she or my boss, or my kids, or my whatever it is, whatever the things are that are keeping you from feeling and experiencing peace, if you realize that those external things that are affecting you, they're never going to get better until first you find peace inside of you. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and you imagine, again, being part of that family, and you, like, you know the stories that circulated about your mom. Like, you would hear those things growing up, your mom got pregnant before she was really fully married. 
And so he lives with the scandal of that. He knows these things. And this is what the half-brother of Jesus wrote in James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? That if my passions are at peace within me, and someone comes warring against me, then suddenly I'm okay. And so think right now, whoever your enemy is, whoever you have animosity with, whatever it is that is just robbing you of peace, and think, what's actually inside of me that's actually off, that's at war? Because if that war can be settled within me, then this war out here doesn't have to affect me like that. It doesn't mean it goes away. Jesus will take that away one day. But it doesn't have to affect you so profoundly. But now we have the question, how can I have that internal peace? Because this sounds wonderful, and and I am not telling you that we should all be Stoics, like the the philosophy of the Stoics, like just kill emotion and just be this kind of inanimate thing that still has breath, but that's not at all the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to be very honest about our emotions and yet not be ruled by them. And so we, we want to know, how can we have this internal peace? Let's keep reading, verse 20. But after he had considered these things, I'm going to stop there. Hit the brakes for just a second, and let's take a sharp right turn. What did he just do? He considered. We don't like to do that culturally. We like, when something happens to us, we like to fly to the keyboard. We like to fly to that group of people that we can gossip with and just rage and just go crazy on whatever the circumstances are. And that's, that's, that's what like, we, we kind of couch in like, oh, that's how I process. I'm an external processor. I need to process. And so there's a right way to process with friends. But do the work of considering how much of the strife that robs us of peace would not exist if we would just slow down and actually consider things. To just be people who consider things, that think through things. How much of that would actually just be taken off the table? How much more peace would we experience if we would just consider things? Joseph being hurt in a way that I cannot imagine. He considers these things. And then perhaps that's why he could decide in the end What's best here is to quietly divorce her. Instead of putting her on blast, shaming her to the whole world, I'm just going to quietly walk away from this. He considered. So let's keep going. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph also now receives this angelic vision, and the angel preaches the gospel to him. The the gospel is how we too can have peace. This good news that Jesus is going to become our peace. That Jesus is the one, he's to be named Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. The Lord saves, and he will save his people from his sins. Do you see the beauty of the deity of Christ that is pronounced here? That God himself has come to be your peace. This is who Jesus is. He's stepped into the story of humanity. The one that he presides over, he created all things, and it's all created for him, and yet he enters into it. He says, I'll be your salvation. He will be our peace. That Christ is our peace. Jesus, the one who became human, still fully God, yes, 
but fully man as well, and then lived a sinless life so that when you and I inevitably fail to measure up, we have fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners. We fail. And there's condemnation that comes justly because of that. There's the wrath of God to face. There are due consequences for our sins, and you cannot atone for them yourself. You can never do good enough to to tip the scales back in your favor. You cannot. You cannot measure up. But the good news is that God says, I'll do it for you. That Jesus came and he was sinless. And he became the perfect sacrifice to die in our place, taking all of the consequence that we justly deserve on himself. And he did that for the joy set before him, that he thought it would be a joy to do that, to die for you. So that if you would put your trust in him, turn from your sin, repent, confess to be a sinner, be honest about your failings, do the work of considering, be honest about this, and be honest about who he is as you confess that he is Lord. He is Jesus, the Lord saves. He will save his people from their sins. He will save you from your sins. He died taking the death that you deserved on himself and then he rose again victorious over the grave, over sin and death so that you could have everlasting life with him. And you must believe this good news. Like Joseph believed and he acted on it. We have to believe this, that God himself has become our peace. Jesus is our peace, this internal peace we desperately need. This is the way Paul said it in Romans 5. He said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is what you need. If you can see, like in any scenario where you're not experiencing peace, if you can see at the forefront how Christ is our peace, we are at peace with God. And passions that are war within us, lay down their arms. And now I too can lay down my arms and I don't have to engage in this conflict. This doesn't have to be a fight. We can actually experience real peace because we're at peace with God. And if you don't see this emphatically enough, look at the way that Paul writes this in Philippians uh, chapter four, verses six to seven. Uh, many of you probably have this memorized. It's, it's really good, and I hope you do. It says, don't worry about anything. Like, who's, who's done that this week? <laughs> like, that's actually a command. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And now this beautiful promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't you want that? Like no passions at war within me. There's this peace that I can't describe, that I can't comprehend. There's this peace of God that has come into my life. I mean, don't you want that? I so want that to be true of me all the time. But where is that? How do we find that? Where do we get that peace of God? Have you noticed the end? There's a positional statement that clarifies all of that. Where does that peace of God come from that that surpasses knowledge, surpasses understanding? In Christ Jesus. He is our peace. And we can go chasing so many things, thinking that they're going to bring me peace finally. When I get this, when I have that, when I'm here, when I'm there, what gives peace that just blows your mind? Jesus. He is our peace. Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, the one that Isaiah, as Christmas time, famously prophesied about this child to be born to us, and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and what? Prince of Peace. That Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and today I want you to hear this, if nothing else, the Prince of Peace has become our peace. The Prince of Peace has become our peace. For every turmoil within us, we have to seek the peace that only Christ can actually provide for us. That is where we find peace. Because every strife in this life, every tension that you experience, every time that you're like, I can't say that peace defines what I'm experiencing right now, every single moment of angst, every relational turmoil, everything that is short of perfection is a redemptive longing that you are experiencing. That things are not what they should be. And again, we do the work of considering and we say, honestly, this is not what I want it to be. And when you're honest about that, when you can do the work of consideration and see that, and then you say, what does the gospel say of that? If Jesus is my peace, then how does the gospel address every turmoil that's within me? Every single one of them. It's all an opportunity for you to say, but what will Jesus one day do with this? And maybe he'll do it today. And so we'll ask him, please, come Lord Jesus. If not visibly, then just in my life, in my heart, in my marriage, in my whatever, then will you do this now for me? But you look to him. You, you ask, what does the gospel say of my striving, of all the strife in my life? If I feel this insecurity, because again, James says, what's the source of quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? And so if I'm fighting with this person, I think, man, it's about this. Like they did this to me and I did this and it's back and forth and like I'm trying to get even or I'm trying to find justice or whatever it is. And if I stop and I say, why is this actually affecting me? Why do I have to lash out in this way? Why do I feel like I need vengeance? Why do I feel like whatever it is? I say, what did Jesus do for me? What does the gospel actually say is true of me? Well, I feel this way because they make me feel insecure. And when I feel insecure, I feel like I'm not of worth and no one actually wants me or loves me or pursues me. And I think, what did Jesus do for me? That the God of the cosmos says, I want you and I'm coming after you at the cost of my own life. And suddenly, that strife with this person, like, well, that's silly. That's so silly. And I can lay down my arms and say, you know, I love you. There's a God who loves me. This is belong, be known, be loved. We say, ultimately, we call you beloved. How can we say that we love you when you may really hurt me and I can promise you as one of your pastors, I will fail you. Like, I want you to know that up front. I am not gonna meet all of your expectations and I will likely, tragically, I'm gonna try my best not to, but I will likely hurt you in some way at some point because I'm human. And I so don't want to, but it's in me until Jesus completes the work that he began in me. But I can tell you that you're still loved. And I am going to love you. And I can do that because I know the way that God loves me. And grace and mercy. That I don't deserve his favor and yet he's lavishing it on me. That he loves me. And so I know that I am his beloved and then I can love you. That vertical just overflows into this horizontal. That you're loved. You don't have to fight. And that doesn't mean everything is okay, but it does mean you can be okay. That you can have peace. Every strife is just a redemptive longing that we have to consider the gospel and response to and see how it is how we will find peace. And it, 
the gospel is all about Jesus. He's at the center of it. The Prince of Peace. Um, this is a season to celebrate the arrival of the Prince of Peace. And I, I don't want this to be a sad gathering, but we, again, do the work of considering. That in light of the hope of what's to come, like Joseph, like looking forward to marriage with Mary for life, the love of his life. And then his world is rocked when things go a little awry. But then he could find peace and then ultimately know that that little child, that little boy, that is guaranteed going to create a ton of strife for you. And you can hear yourself in this story, Christian. You're going to experience turmoil because of him. And yet it is him, that little boy, who becomes a man who we know as Lord of Lords, King of Kings, He's going to create problems for you. But he is your peace. And so you can navigate this. You can have peace. You have him. He has given us himself. And yet in this season where we celebrate his arrival, um, it often comes with a lot of angst and sorrow, uh, worry, and so forth, because things are not all peaceful. In a season where we celebrate him, it often devolves into conflict. Like, family gets together, and there's a reason family's not together all the time, and uh, like all this stuff. And what do we do in that? You know what you call someone that you don't have peace with? An enemy. That's an enemy. Like, you could argue that there was a moment, or many moments, we don't know how long this took, where Mary, in Joseph's mind, would have been considered an enemy. But... We can get to radical ways of viewing an enemy, like someone who just wants to kill you or things, but uh, for us, it's, it's a lot more subtle. And you may think, like, oh, I don't have any enemies. But think through this. Who is your enemy? Um, who can you just not stand to listen to? Or when you have to listen to them, you listen, but you can't hear them. Who's it just hard to listen to? Who can you just not stop thinking about because they've hurt you or they just annoy you, they bother you? Who is it that when they show up in the room, all you can think is who's going to be the first to leave because we can't both be here. And you just can't stand, you can't settle down until one of you is gone. Or who is it that you just can't imagine having a good, loving relationship with? That's your enemy. And suddenly it just got a lot broader. There's a lot more. And what is the way of Jesus? It's to love your enemy. To love your enemy. And how can you do that? You remember that I was once the enemy of God and he loved me. He sacrificed for me. It cost him greatly because he wanted me. And it may be like literally impossible psychologically right now for you to think I want to be with the person that I can't stand. That actually is a place where we get mentally where it's not possible. But when you think of the impossible, you think of a dead savior and then a living savior with an empty tomb. You say, anything is possible. You see the way that you're loved. See the way that you have peace with God and then you can have peace with others. And we love our enemies. And how do we do that? First thing that that angel said to Joseph, Joseph, what is it? Don't be afraid. You know why we don't step into actively loving our enemies? Fear. If you took every fear out of the equation, would you still be in conflict? No. 
And so practical application, what do we do with this? If we're supposed to be peacemakers, we're supposed to be people of peace, we're supposed to love our enemies, what do I do? Start with addressing the fear. What is it that you're afraid of? See again how the gospel addresses that fear and suddenly that's no longer a fear. It's off the table and now I'm free to actually operate in the way of Jesus. Address the fear. Fear stands opposed to peace. It's so, it's so easy to say that but a lot harder to do it, right? Like, I'd love to not be afraid. I'm afraid that I'm always going to be afraid though. How do I address this fear? Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, so- someone gifted my father-in-law, who then gifted us with some tickets to an NHL game, and it was um, my, my son and I love hockey, and so uh, it's his favorite team and my favorite team, which, you know, house divided, but uh, it's the Pittsburgh Penguins versus the Tampa Bay Lightning, and my first NHL game when I was a kid was the same game. So it was like this beautiful moment where like, now he loves the Penguins, and I'd always tell him, like, they're my second favorite team because I had to become a Tampa Bay fan. But when I first went, the Penguins were my favorite team, and they lost to the Lightning, which was, like, such an upset win and all this stuff. And um, it, was, it was weird, um, all this stuff. But now we're going, and I'm trying to tell my son Leland all the while, like, man, I'm, I'm going to be happy if either team wins. Like, I, I love both teams, but I got to go for Tampa. They're, they're our team here. And he's, he's all into Pittsburgh. So he's going, for the, he's going for the Penguins, and we're giving each other a hard time and all this stuff. And, and the game starts. This is his first NHL game in his life. Game starts, and pretty quickly, Tampa Bay scores. And I'm like on my feet, like, yeah, that's awesome, take that, and all this stuff, like giving him a hard time. And all this. Uh, not soon after, Tampa scores again. We're up by two. And I'm again just poking it, and I'm watching him as he's just like crumbling. You know, poor little guy. He, he gets to the point where, like, he's just despondent. He's, he's upset, like, holding back the tears, not wanting to talk. And he looks at me and he says, are you having fun? <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, are you having fun? He's like, maybe, like, 40%. <laughs> like, like, so we're, I'm trying to have this moment where I explain, like, we can still enjoy the game. Like, it would actually not be fun if your team won everything. But he is just not liking it at all. I'm like, this is kind of sad. Like his first NHL game and he's just hating life. And um, we get through the first period and the second period, Penguins score. And I just see him light up. And then not soon after, Penguins score again. And he just lights up even more. We get to the third period, they score again. And then we get close to the end of the game. The goalie has been called on Tampa side because they're losing. So you know, pull the goalie, put an extra man to push forward. And Pittsburgh Penguins, for the first time in their history, only the 17th time in all of NHL history, their goalie gets the puck and shoots from his net and scores in Tampa's net. And Leland, my son, is just ecstatic, like, this is awesome and everything. He's just, he's having the time of his life. I think it's just so wild that you go from the start of a game where he is just crushed. And how could we go on? Like, do you see the madness around us? This is awful. This is not good. What is going on in this world? And then you fast forward just a little while and you see the victory that is certain and you say, man, oh, glory be to God. Come, Lord Jesus. That's what we have to do. How different would that game be if I told him at the very start, I've got an inside tip, man. You have nothing to worry about. We're gonna win. Have you read the scriptures from start to finish? Do you know what is guaranteed? We win. That Christ is coming back to make all things new. 
It is decided. It is as good as done. He is who was and is and is to come. It is as good as done. Christian, the victory is decided. You have nothing to fear. There is nothing for you to be afraid of. And so today you have peace. That you can walk through this life and things are not okay. But you know that one day they will be. One day they will be. Because Jesus is our peace. The Prince of Peace has become our peace. This is our story too. Just as much as it was Joseph's. It's our story. That he is our peace. Uh, You may know this, but uh, the first great world war. Uh, There's something happened. There are over... 40 million casualties. That's for the first time. It's just many nations, just an outright total war, just destroy, decimate cities, civilian casualties like never before. It's, it's awful. And in the midst of that war comes Christmas of 1914. Over 100,000 World War I soldiers on the battlefields of Belgium and France on Christmas Eve just stopped pulling the trigger. They stopped pulling the trigger. And a German, after a bit, on one side, pops his head up out of the trench and looks across no man's land. And then the rest of his body follows suit. He pulls himself up, makes it clear, I have no gun. And he starts to walk forward. Until, you know what happens over the next 24 hours is... Not all, but most of the soldiers stopped fighting for the duration of Christmas Day. They stopped fighting. British rifleman Graham Williams, he wrote this in his own journal. He said, first the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours. Until we started up, O come all ye faithful. The Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, Ereste Fidelis. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. That both sides knew that there's something about the advent of the Prince of Peace. This this makes no sense what we're doing right now. But it didn't start until one side said, I'm going to stop pulling the trigger for just a moment. And I'm going to start singing. I'm going to just relish in the beauty and grandeur of a God who would come to save and I started to sing. And the other side starts to sing. And they start singing back and forth. And next thing you know, they're out in the middle of a field where there are countless dead men all around them from both sides. And they start laughing and singing together and making silly gifts out of anything they could find on their uniforms and trading them and everything else. And yes, the very next day, they started killing each other again. But on that day, there was peace for so many of them. Because one side started singing. And this season, I want to ask, will you start singing? Stop pulling the trigger and start singing to your Savior. Sing to Him. And we sing with honesty that we have inner conflicts, we have turmoils. What are you trying to fill? What are you trying to satisfy? What is the passion that is at war within you? And will you look and see that Jesus alone is really going to satisfy that? He's going to do that nothing else will. So let's be the first side to start singing. So I want you to stand up and let's sing. And we're going to sing about how we desperately want our Savior to come back. So sing of your hope, your longing, your yearning for Jesus to come again, knowing that it's 
decided. Just like he has come, he will come again. And so we sing longing for his coming, but with the hope of knowing that he has come.